Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Show. 
Uh, we sent out Gridiron Greats Magazine, our latest issue. I'm just curious if you guys on the West Coast got it yet. Uh, I'm, I'm in a little weird circumstance. I mentioned we had a fire at our house. We're living at a rental now, and we've been oh, okay. too, so a little too lazy to forward some of our stuff, uh, and, and especially oh, uh, periodicals like that. So, you know, okay. two, three times a week I walk my dog down there and grab the mail. So I'll, I'll go check it today. Okay. All right. I'm just curious because uh, I, it seems like three-quarters of the country got the magazine and the whole West Coast. I don't know where it is, so uh, I'm just curious about that. <laughs> who got theirs and who well, did not I'll, get theirs? It's unbelievable. I'll definitely anyway, swing by and check, and check it out. Yeah, send me a holler and just let me know if you got it or not. But in any event, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about tonight. One thing before we get started on the script, uh, I saw a preview for Love of the Game Auctions. And the yep. auction is out. It's the, it's the set builder auction, which has a ton of, uh, obviously, baseball uh, cards for yeah. your card sets and so on and so forth. But uh, I had a nice little uh, section for football there. I don't know if you got a chance to look at it. I, I looked at it briefly last night. And uh, some interesting stuff there. I did, yeah. A lot of, lot, lot of really high-end baseball sets that Al, uh, you know, got. I'm, I'm always... I always, I love seeing Al be successful. He's, he's such a good friend, such a good man in the hobby. Uh, just one of those stalwarts. So I love seeing him be successful in his auctions. And uh, uh, but I did notice it was pretty baseball heavy. Um, gosh, what was it? I texted our group, our, our you know nerdy football group, like a month ago, where there was some auction that came out. I think it was. Anyways. Uh, where, uh, you know, I'm used to seeing, like, uh, I think it was REA, where I'm used to seeing, like, yeah, yeah, football, yeah. Uh, you, you know, uh, basketball and boxing lumped into one category. Uh, but yeah, the, And yeah. usually football is the first category right out of the gate. For the first time ever, you clicked on that subset and basketball, you had to wade through 200 basketball lots to get to the sparse oh, football wow. selection. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't think I've ever wow. seen, you know, basketball usurp football from, you know, the top of the heap there and clearly second place. But pretty well, interesting. You know, I, uh, hate, I hate to say it, but the last couple, the, the, the two shows that I've done down here in the Carolinas, I mean, basketball everywhere. And it, it inevitably, half the people passing through my table, well, do you have any basketball? Do you have any basketball? And I obviously say, no, I just deal in football. And then they, they just move on buying, and that's it, you know. And, and again, I go, I go back to the National, and, you know, I set up with Josh Adams of his uh, Midwest uh, sports card, uh, card company and auction, and he basically had probably 75% basketball on the, on the table. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing I to me. I, I don't think it's – I don't think it's so much that people are basketball fans. I think it's that you've seen such a tremendous spike in bright and shiny modern basketball cards. I'll, I'll bet you yeah. 75% of the people who come by, do you have any basketball, you're interested in basketball, don't watch basketball. <laughs> Leads me to an interesting topic. Somebody over the weekend yeah, I mean, was I re- saying, you know, a, a, 
you know, football is the most watched sport in America. I'm like, yeah, but there's also 16 games. And, uh, you know, got brought up, do you think baseball will ever die? You know, is there a time where baseball will be played? I'm like, no, never. Uh, You know, baseball will never go away. But I'm like, there's also 180-something baseball games that are played in a season. People eventually, even if you're a diehard baseball fan, you're not going to watch all that. I mean, I know very few people yeah. who have you know, that radio on in the background. But I also know a lot of baseball card collectors who don't watch baseball. Uh, collecting the right. sets. Right. You, know, they, they, you know, they used to be stat heads. Baseball's more of a stat game. Uh, you know, football's becoming a stat game. But, you, you, you know what I mean, where it's like, I, I'm a huge yeah, Steve yeah, Argent yeah. fan. I don't, well, yards, I don't know how many yards he ended his career with. And I noticed, I noticed that uh, the last show I went to, I had a couple. These guys have to have been in their early twenties. Uh, I mean, uh, early thirties, late twenties, and they were looking for display pieces for their man cave. So the guy, one guy was asking me, um, in particular, I had a couple of Carolina Panther items there, and he said, "Yeah, this this will look good in my man cave." And I said, "Well, do you collect, you know, Panthers publications, cards, or anything?" You know, he said, "Oh, no, no, no. I'm just looking for stuff to display in my." on my walls. I don't collect anything. And I'm like, I, I kind of looked at him and I'm saying, okay. He says, no, I'm a, I'm a Panthers fan. And I, and I, I, you know, watch the games. I go to games on occasion and that's all I do. You know, there's no interest in collecting a, you know, team set of the Panthers or anything. You know what I mean? It's, it's amazing. Well, to me, really. Well, Captain, you're one of the biggest Green Bay Packer fans I know. Did you? How many games this season did you watch in, in regular season? On the for the for the Packers this year, anything yes. that was yes. on local TV, I watched it. You know, so oh really? I, you know, I, I, yeah. I, you know, whether or not they, they, you know, it's a bad season like this season. Uh, the epitome of the season for me was the Lions game at the the last game of the season when they lost and I and I'm just saying what a what a wasted season this was for the Packers. I mean it was just ridiculous. And again yeah. I get I get I get some longtime Packer fans upset when I say I saw in there our Packers head coach, the Mike McCarthy deer in the headlights look a few times during the season. <laughs> and I saw it a lot yep. in the last game, saying to himself, How is this happening? And why can't our special teams actually be special teams again? You know, that's, that's you know the what? way I look at it. But, you know, I, hey, you I watched the Packers in the 80s when they were horrible. You know, what, you know it is what it is type of thing. You know, and I, I enjoy you, the glory years. You, I mean, we had a heck, heck of a run so far. You, but, again, it's you only threw a couple out Super Bowls. You threw out once a long time ago, Mike McCarthy, deer in the headlight look, and just kind of stunned on the sidelines as he's getting thrubbed. Then it made me laugh. Uh, I was watching that that game, and they kept flashing over to Mike McCarthy, just having this helpless look, like, "Man, what the hell's happening? How did that's not that's not how I planned it out." It was funny. Yep. I, was, I was laughing yep. at your Mike McCarthy joke that you told several times. You know, as I'm watching them just get outclassed. You know, yeah, and well, and in in the Eagles Cowboys game, I I basically saw yep. uh, Mike's deer in the headlight look for three quarters, nonstop. I mean, I I, I know he was yeah. in, he was basically in uh, just 
total shock of what was going on. Seeing the very animated float on him. Yeah, but, he's not. I mean, he's a, he's a but, he's an old school coach. I mean, I like that guy. I always like yeah. that. I, I got bondings from Corinne Ola. He uh, he's he's yeah. a good guy. I like him. I was rooting for him. I don't I don't but get you, you know, not to upset any Eagle fans out there, but I just I'm not excited about the Philadelphia Eagle team. And I and I'm you know, they're beatable as far as I'm concerned. So it is what it is. So they're in for they're in for a tough play, I think, this weekend with the forty ers uh Absolutely. They got a very poised quarterback there as a rookie or whatever he is, and um I th- I think he can he could probably, you know, stage a major upset type of thing. So it'll be yeah, interesting. Be interesting to see what yeah. happens. And then on the AFC uh, side, I just couldn't believe how the Bills lost. I I, I really thought yeah. they, they were going to have a little spark there, but man, oh man, that was, that was nasty watching totally. that game. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the Bengals had it from the very beginning almost. I mean, it was just kind of like yeah, they're at yeah. home. The Bills are at home. They're a good team. It's uh, they got handled, and I'm like, well, I guess Cincinnati did make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, they, I, I guess they've they're not so bad either. Joe Burrow, he, he looked very poised out there. You know what you what you're what you're yeah. hoping for. But um, I, I would like, guess that I you are like... the exception exception to the rule in how many Packers games you watch. Because I mean, I'm a Seahawks fan. I might catch. Four games a year, uh, you know, that I watch on TV. More if it's like a Sunday night game or a Monday night game, something like that. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's uh, I, I've, you know, I love the collecting aspect of it. It's kind of weird. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine. We, we once a year we do a, a dad's weekend up at, up in Mount Hood, and I was talking to a friend of mine, Barry Raber, who's uh, who's one of the only non-collector people I know who listens to the podcast. And he was like, hey, I loved your show with, you know, Kurt on. And it just kind of made me laugh. I'm like, because I do the show every once in a while. And uh, he's like, did you know that Jim Zorn, my his dad owned a car dealership. He's like, Jim Zorn in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, came to my dad's dealership and, you know, threw passes to all the neighborhood people who came, you know, blah, 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 you know. It was just kind of cool. We, so we've been texting back and forth about, you know, Jim Zorn and this. Uh, and I'm like, you know, it would be it would be a goal to get Steve Largent on the show. And uh, I think a good way to do that would be to invite people around him, like Jim Zorn and, you know, stuff like that, Dave Craig, and get those people on the show. So I'm saying it right here, right now. My goal is to have – Steve Largent on the Gridiron podcast. I'm going to say by Fourth of July, 2024. Give me 18 months. Steve Largent on the Gridiron podcast. That's not, that's Joe wow. Squire's goal. Wow, 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 wow. I'm impressed, Joe. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, we you never know what's going to happen. We do goal setting. Yep, we do goal setting in business. We do goal setting, you know, for personal lives like losing weight, working out, etc. Let's have some goals for the Gridiron Podcast. Well, my goal every day is to wake up, so that's that's my initial goal. <laughs> so if I get through that, I'm happy. That's why I that's downhill. <laughs> yeah. So who would be 
a Bob Swick dream guest on the podcast? Dream guest? Probably. Yeah. Uh, probably Rogers. If I have Aaron Rogers on, Ooh. or if I have, um, I would really like to have, honestly. And I and I've been. I got to try to get in touch with him again. Is uh, Packers former coach Mike Sherman? And I always liked Mike, and um, he's living in Cape Cod right now. He was coaching for a while one of the high school teams up there. So I gotta I gotta use my connections and see if I can get a hold of him. Or if Mike, if you're listening, you got my number. Give me a call. <laughs> we'll see if we can drag you on here and uh, talk football for a while. Now that you know I, the connection with me and Sherman uh, goes back to Connecticut. He attended. He lived in grew up in Massachusetts, and he and he went to college at Central Connecticut State College. Right around the same time, I was going to Southern Connecticut State College. I covered football for a couple seasons for the school paper, and I actually ran into him. Believe it or not, uh, he's a couple years older than me. Uh, at one of the games, in passing, mm-hmm. and I never put two and two together until years later, when holy mackerel. He put, and I didn't realize it was, it was the same guy who played for Central Connecticut. So um, I wrote to him when he was the head coach. I told him, you know, I said, I know, I'm sure you don't re- remember me in any way, shape, or form, but I just explained the connection. And he sent me a real nice uh, handwritten note back. And uh, he said, no, I don't remember you, but I do remember Southern. I remember Central, blah, blah, blah. And it was pretty cool. I thought it was a cool, cool connection. But, uh, Dream? No, I really never put a lot of thought in that. Who would be the dream podcast guest here that we could have on for, for my my end? I know yours is larger. I got I got to give it some thought. That's a good question. I like that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. But I think mine's a little easier because at least Largent's retired. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Rogers <laughs> might be too soon. It'll be interesting. All right, let's move on because our special guest tonight is. Uh, here and uh, our special guest tonight uh, will be a continuation from last week's yeah. show because we ran out of time and he graciously decided and accepted our invitation to come back and uh, finish up a few topics we were talking about. While he was growing up near Iowa City, he was raised an Iowa Hawkeyes fan and remains so to this day. As a kid, he was an avid sports card collector with basketball and football being his main focus. After high school, he attended Iowa State University to study engineering and returned to his hometown afterwards to work in the family business back in 2003. Around this time, he rediscovered his childhood card collection and got back into collecting. As he started joining online forums and meeting other collectors, he started to define and narrow his collecting focus. One collector in particular, our own Joe Squires, was very inspirational to him as Joe was assembling graded football card sets from the 35 Chickle set through the mid-1980s. The task seemed daunting and challenging, yet exciting, and something he could work on for years to come, so he decided to tackle a similar project from the 35 Chickle set to the 1972 Top set. Throughout his time collecting, he started becoming more intrigued with the dealer side of the hobby and began to straddle the fence between collector and dealer. And around 2019, he decided to leave his job and start selling sports cards full-time through his company, BBC Emporium. Again, I'd like to welcome back Mr. Kurt Schmickdahl 
to the show for part two of our discussion. Kurt, thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for having me back, Bob and Jeff. It's, uh, or Joe, sorry. It's, uh, it's an honor to be back and uh, continue our conversation. So. <laughs> Kurt, yeah, I think I, there's I, been three people that have we have two-peated as a guest on the show. So you join a very coveted pantheon of distinguished guests that we loved so much, we wanted you back. You're like you're like the Tom Hanks of SNL right now, hosting. <laughs> hosting. Well, hey, that's an honor. I appreciate that. And uh, as I as I as I explained to our audience beforehand, uh, we. We ran out of time last weekend. There was several other areas which I think are very, very important to the understanding, especially uh, 56, 57, 58 top sets. And I think they're very much not known what we're talking about. And I think with further explanation, uh, I know a lot of collectors will understand things a lot more, and hopefully this will be uh, good information that we can offer the collecting hobby uh, in their pursuits of those sets. So let's lead off, and we're going to have a general discussion tonight about a few areas. 1956 tops again. We have, and we touched briefly last week on Cleveland Brown oversized cards. And Kurt, I'm going to hand off yep. to you first. Give us some background again on those oversized cards and, and your theories on it. Sure. So there's four cards within the 1956 top set that can be found in like an oversized state. Now, when I say oversized, I'm talking maybe a quarter to a half inch wider and taller. They're, they're oversized enough where they will not fit into a standard PSA gasket or the holder. So when I say oversized, I'm not talking about like some giant card. They're just slightly oversized. And there's, there's four cards from the set that are found oversized. I, I mentioned three of them last week, but there's four of them. And I'll, it's the, the Chuck Ulrich, the Buddy Young, the Chicago Bears team card, and the Cleveland Browns team card. And if you, if you look at an uncut sheet, you'll see that all four of these cards are in the lower right corner, and there are four cards that are vertically stacked. And those are the ones that are found oversized and the the question becomes um, why just those four cards why were they cut oversized and I I think really to to kind of theorize on how that came to be I, I think the first question that needs to be asked is what was the process that tops used for cutting down sheets so you have a 110 card sheet what was the process from there to get down to an individual card? And before I kind of give my theory, I, was, I wanted to see, get your guys' take. Do you guys know much about the cutting process within the Topps factory? I do for modern. I've seen some processes for how they did it with vintage. It, it's as simple as you think. It's a machine with rails and, uh, and blades that come down. Uh, so when you're, you know, and the, you know the the label you have showing those, uh, you know the the you know the picture you sent showing those those cards. It's kind of weird because if, if they were the if they were the uh, 
is, is that the bottom of the sheet, or was there a card below it on the bottom row? No, that that row, was the row, bottom. Row. So like that Chuck Ulrich would okay. be the very bottom lower right card. So, and is it is is it an oddity? Like it's odd for that that to find that card oversized, or is it is it prevalent throughout most of that of, of that set? I would say it's it's more of an oddity, um, but they're not extremely scarce to find. You know, just just a real ballpark figure. Um, I would say maybe and fifteen uh, percent of them are found oversized. And oddly yeah. enough, when you find them oversized, and granted, I mean, it seems like a lot of times they're they're very high end. And there's also been some talk about whether those oversized cards were issued in wax or just vending. It seems to be that they were just found in vending, but I I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Well, geometrically, you can see how it happened. If the the rail is off slightly, if the right rail – or excuse me, the uh, the, left rail is one degree off, you know, that that right blade as it's coming down, because – you know, from what I've seen when the process happens, it's it's one blade, you know, or it's, you know, what, it, what would it be? It's 12 by 11. There'd be, you know, 10 blades in the middle that cut. They come down at once. So you're sliding a stack of sheets into guide rails, and you're truing them up, and then the, and then the, the blades come down, you know, you know, in a straight process, not like a paper cutter. Uh, so you take that left guide, and you put it one degree off, and suddenly, you know, one degree spread out over, you know, 11, you know, or excuse me, 12 rows, because it's 11 columns, 12 rows, uh, and suddenly you're, you know, one degree off at the start, you know, ends up with a quarter of an inch on the bottom four cards. What would be interesting is to take the four cards on the bottom left where those would have been cut, and those would be miscut. So those would be a quarter inch shy, correct? It, it is, and, and oddly enough, so since our last podcast, it kind of got my mind thinking a little bit further on, you know, what possibly could have caused this. So I, I kind of did a little bit of a deeper dive on this particular topic, and I yesterday I posted a bunch of new information on VFC. So to the audience, if you're not a member of VFC, definitely go sign up. But um, <laughs> as you say, great, as you say, Joey. Yeah, Jeff owes me. You're Um, you're getting a Christmas card from Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) But oddly enough, you're exactly right, Joe. So what I created, I I created a heat map of the 56 uncut sheet. When I say heat map, I kind of grab – I kind of broke down, like, which cards were more difficult to find in high grade. And I kind of broke it into 10 different categories, and I assigned a different color to each of those categories. And I overlaid that on an uncut sheet. I love you, Kurt. I want to pause here, man. I love you. You do some of the greatest heat map. You've you've done this before on other sets, and I absolutely love it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So because – on the oversized cards, when you see them, it's not like they're very like super off-centered. You'll you'll see that the over, oversized cards are relatively centered, which means they have to be encroaching in on those cards to the left of it on the sheet. And and sure enough, if you look, those cards right to the left of those oversized cards are more difficult to find in high grade, and probably for exactly the reason that you stated. 
So I would have thought that was carrying all the way over to the left column. Okay. I got a question. Oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm talking the row directly to the left of the, the, not the very left. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I got a a question. Thinking about this over the week. Yep. And you mentioned the vending machine, right? Could it have been yep. possible that the vending machine or the company that, that put the cards in the vending machines or whatever requested taps to make them a little bigger so they would either fit better, slide out better? Could that have been possible? I don't know. I'm wondering. Hmm. Has, have you ever um, heard anything like, you know? I've, I've never heard that. So. My my first reaction to that, Bob, would be is if they're wanting – if they requested the cards to be oversized a bit more, they'd almost kind of have to redo the entire sheet layout to a certain extent because it's going right. to grow the okay. entire yeah. sheet. Um, and the fact that it's limited to just four cards, my guess is right. – and right. my background being in manufacturing engineering, my mind always kind of goes to the operation in terms of – you know, yeah. what, what was the yeah. operation in the factory that would maybe have caused this? Um, yep. Another thing that I looked at, and Joe, you know, it's the, your comments on how they cut down an uncut sheet are interesting because I've never really talked to anyone that has a real thorough understanding of back in the 50s and the 60s how they cut those down. So one thing I looked at this week is I went out and I rounded up all the uncut sheets and uncut fragments of 56 yeah. sheets that I could find. And I kind there's of, a lot of them, you know, surprisingly, there's a lot of I, I looked at that. There's too. a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. Little, little and, Jeff, my, yeah. My, and Jeff, I'm sorry. I keep on calling you Jeff. I'm thinking of Jeff Payne, Joe, sorry, Joe. Um, the one thing that I kind of found was, is I, I think when they cut these sheets down in the factory, I think they took the 110 card sheets and cut them down into smaller sub sheets before they started cutting them down into individual cards. And like I said, it's, it's kind of hard to explain verbally. Um, like I said, if you go over to VFC, I kind of have a nice visual representation of how a sheet, how I think a sheet was cut down and maybe sheds a bit more light on how one of those rows could have been cut oversized. But um, it's, it's interesting. Like I said, it's um, – go ahead, Bob. That that makes a lot of sense because again, we don't know what the print run was. So let's just say they had a thousand of those sheets, and at that time in the fifties, paper cutters were probably um, rarely automated like they are today, where they're programmed and you can get yeah. the cuts that way. So they probably, let's say they had a thousand sheets, so they would have to put a list of maybe fifty sheets in, and like you're saying, cut them down in half cut them down a half again and then quarters or whatever sequence that they had. And for whatever reason, it could be something as simplistic. The blade got dull by the time they were doing the bra- that corner of the Browns cards, whatever, or it slipped in the, um, the gauges or locks that they had to hold the paper in place. And in this case, it's board. Yep. It's not paper because they're cards. And the reason why I, I mentioned that is because years ago, I grew up in Connecticut, North Brantford, Connecticut. New Haven, Connecticut had federal paperboard company in it. They would get out of Brooklyn a lot of TAPS 
sheets, and they would fulfill them there. I mean, they would cut them there, do some wrapping there, so on and so forth. So as the years went on in the late 60s, early 70s, there were weird cut baseball cards floating around in school. And somebody, and I, I just think it's popped into my mind over the week too. A kid said, well, my dad got him from, from work. And he gave them to me, and he gave, he's going to get some more, and he's going to give them give them to us. You know, he told him pass them out to your friends. He worked at New Haven Paperboard, so hmm. it's interesting. I think that might. I think what you're saying, Kurt, is probably the most logical thing. But then we still don't know what happened to those four cards, other than possibly the blade got dull. Whatever happened, you know, happened type yep. of thing. Let's let's get simpler than that. I mean, you know. You know, Kurt, your background's machinery. I, w- I was on a submarine in the Navy. Stuff vibrates, it comes loose. Think about that yep. guide rail. There's there's two guide rails that the, the sheets fit perfectly into. Let's say that upper left screw uh, is, you know, the threads are a little janky. Uh, you know, it's getting a little sloppy. Let's think, think the machine comes down a little heavier on that side or it comes from that side. thousand sheets, after a hundred sheets, stuff starts to come loose. Not not yep. a stretch of the imagination to see one screw coming loose, and you know, and 20 sheets later, they notice you know it's coming. You know, QA comes over and goes, "Hey man, you know that screw's coming loose again." Oh, sorry about that, man. Maybe we should just drill and tap that and rethread it just to keep it from coming loose. Because uh, right, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, I I've, yeah. I'm amazed at what used to break on submarines. My like, God, this is a billion dollar machine. I can't believe it, but. After every tour, we had duct tape and stuff laying on the ground, you know, fixing stuff. So, I mean, you know, it, it's just stuff's coming loose. And if one screw comes loose, the guide rails come off, and uh, it takes a while from the notice. Uh, I did a lot of research on how the 48 leaf cards were cut. And that's where I started visiting a friend of mine who has a print shop, uh, Mike Taverner, who's a, you know, a you know, football card collector, used to be a printer. And we think yep. of all these quality assurances that are, you know, in place now, and they weren't back then. I mean, it's a hydraulic machine. They take 30 sheets, they align them, they put them into the guide rails, and, uh, you know, they rack them, and they tighten it down, and then a hydraulic press. They put their foot on the pedal, they hit a button, you know, the safety pedal, they hit a button, and all these blades come down and cut it into, you know, and, and the ones I've seen, they cut them into vertical columns, you know. Uh, yep. So they, they, you know, they, so they're strips first, and then those strips go over, and then they get cut. Uh, that's how I've seen sure. them done. I don't know if that's specifically for '56, but I saw one on a pro. I forget what year it was. I want to say it was like '60 Fleer or something like that. And that that's how they, that's how Fleer did it. And that's the okay. the, the video mm-hmm. that I watched on the printing process, and it was just. A hydraulic machine back there with just with just presses, and you know I can smell the print press floor right now with all the hydraulic fluid and yeah. uh, so uh, you know I was obsessed with miscuts and misprints and different colors of the 48 leaf, and when my printer friend just explained to me, he's like, they had quality control problems. I mean, they're they're not worried about burgundy and maroon and red for the Sammy Baugh shirt. They just used whatever print, you know, whatever ink they had, and got it close enough, you know. And uh, well, I, I think, I think that's very probable. Um, the, the one thing that I kind of learned this week, and which kind of like led into my theory, is when I was looking at all these uncut '56 sheets, there's a lot of um, 
that are kind of like uh, maybe four by five or four by four cards. Yeah. And I was yeah. kind of like, well, you know, are these just kind of like scraps that came out of the factory. But as, as I started collecting yeah. more and more, it's like, okay, there's identical. You see a lot of identical sheets of those four by fours. Uh-huh. So I started to kind of oh, play it. around with an overall sheet, and that's kind of where I backed into like. I think maybe they're taking that larger sheet and cutting it down to like maybe four smaller sheets and then doing the individual cuts. But it, like you said, yep. Joe, you bring up a lot of good points. I, I don't know. It's just it's it's interesting to kind of look at all these little things and try to back into how yeah. how it how to, how it became that way. My my printer buddy was talking about a a, sh- a sheet that gets dropped, a sheet that gets you know mangled, a, a printing mistake, and they pull it off the. You know, I, I don't I didn't look at those fifty six thing, but I, I went through eBay looking for some of those rare cards after you and I saw a bunch of those samples. If they're blank backed, maybe they had a an ink problem and they uh just used that as you know, maybe we can do use salesman samples. I mean, um yeah, I mean uh, you know, but a sheet got damaged, it got dropped, a corner got smushed. I mean, you know, who knows, maybe he's putting them into the guide ra- yeah. I mean I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm theorizing how a sheet was cut. I mean, you might be right. Sure. They might have cut it in half and then made it more manageable. Uh, don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, now the, the other question, to, to just try to parallel this, how much are those oversized cards in demand, if at all, and how many master set collectors are really trying to pursue it? I know of a couple, huh. but is it really that – much in demand in the hobby. I'm curious about them. Oh. My oh. my experience has been, so a couple of things, you know, when it comes to defining a master set, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's one go-to source, but, like, I know, like, the PSA registry and the 56 master set, they do not include the oversized cards. So I think an oh, argument okay. can be made they're not even part of the master set. I've, until this okay. week, um, I met one collector that was like actively looking for them, but besides that, huh. I've I've never heard anyone like specifically look or ask for those cards. I I know fifty six okay, was issued in penny 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 packs and nickel packs. Was there a fifty six yeah. cello? Um, yes, there was. In fact, the article that I wrote, I I have a picture of a fifty six cello box. Oh, wow. So they they do exist. Oh, wow. Oh well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. But again, the other the other thing too. Now, you know, we brought it out, brought it to light again. I'm just curious if there's going to be a you know uh, some sort of renaissance for those cards. Uh, if they're going to be in demand again, <laughs> and or they just you know well I, you know you never know, yeah. or uh, never know. you know yeah. people. I mean, I look, I look, I went through my 56 top set again. And my Browns cards measured act because obviously it's, they're, they're all raw. Um, they measured up to the other cards in the set. There was no noticeable difference. Uh, and I and I you know I go through my fifties cards. I I know I have some miscut cards one way or the other yep. because there was not perfect cutting, uh, you know, back then or even through the sixties at the same time. So, um, but that that's a, an amazing analysis of those cards in that set brings to light something that, you know, some collectors may have been aware of or not been aware of type of thing, and then who knows what it will do with, do with the, uh, in the hobby. Um, yeah. The other point uh, that I want to move on to 
because uh, we're almost running out of time again. Holy mackerel. Um, What's that, Al? 56 and 57 tops checklist cards. Again, why are they so hard to find? Um, are they underappreciated, overappreciated in the hobby? Kurt, your thoughts? Yep, I'll give you my thoughts. And, and once again, a lot of my opinion is going to come from kind of information that I've gathered firsthand. When I go out and buy an original collection, it gives you a really interesting snapshot of what that person was collecting as a kid and how they dealt with the cards and handled them. But I think on those checklist cards, the one thing I do not know, I don't know the, you know, how many of those cards were they, were they rare, more rarely distributed in the packs. But I, I don't know that, but what I do know is, like, a lot of times when I buy childhood collections, there's two two big factors that come into play, I think. One is, as a kid, you pull a checklist, you're not real excited. There's a good chance you may not even hang <laughs> on to that card. So I, I think a lot of those checklist cards probably just got chucked, which is one reason. I I think the other big reason, and I see this all the time with childhood collections, is they marked up the cards to, as they're putting yep. together the set, they functionally used a checklist card that was, as it was designed to be. So I think, yes. I think between those two things, um, that, that to me, that's probably the primary explanations on why these checklist cards are tougher to find, and especially in higher grade. Really good point. I honestly never saw, in all the years of collecting at any show or whatever, a 56 or a 57 checklist unchecked. I mean, I've seen them checked. Yeah. The two checklists I have are all checked. And it's funny, when you said about checklists, it took me a long time to realize, hey, I've told the story numerous times. It wasn't until the 70s that I didn't realize that was a whole set of cards I could have been collecting. And the checklist, <laughs> I really had no perception of what that was, but I thought it was the coolest thing I could color in the box on my checklist card. And yep. I had, you know, I yep. would try to find the card and match. And then what really messed me up sometimes, if there was a second series checklist or whatever, and I had none of those cards, and I said, well, where are these <laughs> cards? It didn't make sense to me, you know. But I didn't throw them out. I just didn't, I didn't understand how to use them type of thing. You know, that's yeah. it. But I do, I agree with you 100% on, on your theories on that. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of young collectors just threw out the checklist cards, and that's what, yep. you know. Yeah. We will uh, and we'll we'll get to it eventually when we discuss fifty seven tops, one of my favorite sets. But the the uh, rarest card I had was the other than the Z Gratkowski was the checklist. I had a PSA yeah. seven twin baloney checklist that was one of the most valuable cards you know in the set that I had outside of the Star and United. Yeah. I mean it was it, it, it was rare. Uh, so I completely agree with you, Kurt and. Speaking from childhood memory, I was smiling as you were telling that story because I remember totally doing that, grabbing a pencil and checking it in and being proud when I filled one in. <laughs> yeah. So, and, completely. And a few other points, you know, it, it seems so on the 56 checklist, there's actually so – I, I looked at the POP report this week just to kind of make sure, um, get, you know, up, update my data, but there's actually four cards – that are more rare than the checklist. So the checklist is tough in the 56 set, but there's actually, like I said, um, three red skin cards and one cardinal card that are tougher to find in high grade. And 
I would say that I would say the 56 checklist is probably a bit easier than the 57 checklist. Once again, I don't I don't know why, but my experience has been the 57s don't come up as often, and they're as Joe mentioned, very difficult to find in high grade. Yeah, it depends on that. Yeah, I, I, I determined that there was there's some double prints in 57 tops, but. The, uh, the the checklist was definitely a single print, so it was a lot rare. And by the way, Joe, I yeah, think, and don't, don't, don't hold my feet to the fire on this, but I'm pretty sure the Zeke Bratkowski is no longer the hardest card in the 57 set. Oh, really? Yes, I, I think there's one other card. I think I, when I look at the pop date, I think there's one other card now that's actually tougher than the Zeke Bratkowski. Well, I was personally responsible for about 30 PSA 7 Zeke Bratkowski's. <laughs> I, uh, I scoured a national once just walking up to every booth. and like, got any 57 tops? Yep. And then I would just thumb through it, look for the Zeke, give it a quick eye. You know, I look at it. If it looked good, I'd, how much for this? Who, who's that? Yeah, give me a buck. And I yeah. went through and personally destroyed everyone's inventory in that card. And then I bumped into a dealer friend of mine, and he's like, what you got? And I show him, like, 35 Zeeks, and he's like, what the hell is up with that? <laughs> I told him the story as only a set collector who built the set can say it. And then uh, a, a year later, I see him collecting Zeeks because he got there the day before me. I'm like, hey, dude, that was some inside information, man. Come on. Uh, yeah. Hey, I, I was curious. Can you walk us through? Oh, no, go for it. I was going to say, Joe, I think you're personally responsible for driving up the pop on the Zeke Bratkowski. <laughs> I, I remember uh, that national. I remember the national. You were looking for all those. I'm kind of like, well, shoot, man. I mean, I kind of like, I got to start looking for that card now, too. So I'm like, I think you kind of sounded the alarm on the Zeke. Uh, yeah, you got to at one point. Uh, but I, I, I was wondering about this. How does a – how does a deal work for, you know, BBC Emporium? I mean, can you run us through that from start to finish? You get a phone call, you get an email from someone, hey, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about selling my childhood collection. How, how does that work? Yeah, so, so typically the first thing I'll request is I'll request this from, hey, give me some general information, rough counts on how many cards you have, send me a few pictures of what you think the better or the more valuable cards in your collection are. That's always kind of yeah. the first step. Um, once they send me – so the, the thing I run into a lot is when people are selling their collections, their expectations are all over the place. Um, a lot of times guys jump on eBay, they find a PSA 10, and they think their card's probably <laughs> in the same ballpark. So it's one thing I've learned is kind of like before I invest a lot of time into a deal – I try to gather a little bit of information, and then I'll give them a little bit of pricing information on what, on what they've sent me. So they send me some pictures of what they think are some of the better cards. Based on the pictures, I'll go through and I'll price those out and say, hey, listen, for these, for these cards that you sent pictures of, we would offer X amount for these cards. And that kind of give me a good idea, hey, are we in the same ballpark pricing-wise? Um, if we are... We'll, we'll kind of move on, you know, get more into the weeds on the rest of the collection. If it's a if it's a collection yeah. that's you know, you know, ten thousand dollars plus or twenty thousand dollars plus, 
a lot of times I'll I'll fly out there or travel out there on site and and close the deal. But a lot of times um, after the initial pricing exercise, they'll go through and they'll send me some more information on, hey, I got X amount from this year, X amount from that year. And then based off of that information, um, I can usually back into a fairly ballpark overall number for the collection. So I don't like to travel or, or put in a lot of effort until, you know, I've kind of come to an agreement on a rough price is, estimate. Um, is, based is on there it, a like – Go ahead. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, no, I was just going to say, is there a clock running? Because does, does a person typically reach out to one person – and get that to a finality, or are they reaching out to three or four different auction houses and, hey, whoever whoever offers me the most, you know, the fastest will get it. So, I mean, do you feel a sense of urgency, I guess, while you're dealing with it? Um, yeah, to a certain extent. Um, I would say probably half the people that I respond back to, I get the sense that I'm not in competition with anyone else. And I, that's kind of how my nature is. I, I never, I'm, I'm always very easygoing with, uh, with the people. One thing, and I think this probably comes from myself being a collector as well, is like I know what that person's going to go through. I know there's going to be a lot of emotional connection, a lot of thinking. So I always try to like, I, I don't like to push people or, or create like an urgent situation. So I'm always very respectful of someone's timeline. But yeah, there are times like when I come across the collection, it's like, you know, very nice material. I'm going to be on that very quickly. And I, I'm not going to push the process, but you better believe I'm responding to emails and getting them information as soon as I can and trying to kind of keep things moving along. Yeah, it's like a, a horde of large cards. You'd be on the plane the next, you know, that night. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> There's certain. Things. I think. I think we. I got my. I got my rec with it. Was it larger? We, we mentioned Bob. Check. Check the box, please. <laughs> we we mentioned this on the show last week. It, it is it is traumatic, especially for you know a serious collector yeah. to to sell a collection, and you know I I I'm going through that now to a certain degree. Seeing letting go some of my stuff the way I am, and I have been yeah. for the past few years. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm not getting younger, and uh, I, I have no one in the family with any interest in it. And I'm sure if I go first, Brenda's not going to say, oh, gee, I can't wait to look at Bob's uh, collection again type of thing. So, you know, you've got to be realistic about it. You've got to be, you know, practical about it. And, uh, I, you know, Kurt, I do appreciate the way you, hand, you, know, you, you stated, and we talked about this a little before, you know, you, you're a collector too, so you understand – the collecting perspective of somebody who spent a lot of time and effort, you know, putting something together, yeah. proud of their accomplishment and the sense yep. of completion that most collectors get when they finish a set or a run or whatever it may be is very strong. And, and, you yeah. know, I think a lot of collectors, you know, thrive off the sense of, of completion uh, regardless of what the collectible is type of thing. So that that's, you know that that has to be taken into consideration at that time. And, so uh, yes, I think one, the more eloquently, one, I think one thing you mentioned, Bob, I think was a very it's a very good point you make. And I this is one piece of advice I'd give to any other collector that's kind of in your shoes. In my opinion, 
it, it's never a real good idea to leave your collection to a spouse or the kids in hopes that they'll do the right thing with the collection. Right. Um, right. So if, if, if you're kind of in that, like, like in your situation, Bob, I mean, yeah, to me, if I, I would recommend to collectors like, you know, you know your cards better than anyone you give them to. And I can tell you from personal experience, when kids are selling their parents' collections, it's very common. You can tell they don't give that much importance about getting top dollar. Or if they just want to move it and get some money. So if you're a collector, um, definitely take the time to try to at least sell as much of your collection as possible if you're ready to before you hand it over to your family members. I think that's a smart thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree have with you ever 100%. Had, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Have you ever had someone swoop in on you where you're like, I'll, I'll be on a plane tomorrow, and uh, and then you show up there or the next morning and they call you and say, never mind, somebody else just showed up and offered me a bag of cash? Yeah, I I don't know if I've had anyone swoop in that late in the game, but there's definitely been times where someone has a collection, they provide pictures, we have a date to set up and talk and go over the collection, and they'll call maybe a few days in advance and say, hey, I've sold the collection to somebody else, and that, that does happen. For the most part, though, if we – people are usually pretty respectful. Like, if you're going to travel, yeah. I've, never, I've never shown up on site and, like, been turned away. Probably my worst experience was I traveled to Chicago once to look at a collection, which included a 52 mantle that was graded. And oh, I, I, I show up and I'm reviewing the collection. And the, guy, the owner, the owner's something's a little bit off with the guy. You can tell he's a little bit nervous. So I'm analyzing the 52 mantle. I noticed that the holder's been tampered with. And you know, this, this, this card probably was 75% of the collection, so it was a pretty big deal. Wow. And I, I, point, I pointed it out to the person, and I think, I think the guy knew because as soon as I pointed it out, he basically kicked me out of his office, and the meeting was immediately over. I think that was probably my worst experience I've ever had dealing with buying a collection. So he wow. was dishonest. I'm yeah. Who's your uh... – Who's your your Moriarty in the uh, you know in the in, in this industry? It's somebody who you're constantly like, oh, I can't believe that guy got that collection. Man, well, I tell you what, I sit there and watch these auction houses like REA and Heritage, and I see the collections they're pulling in, and um, yeah, it's 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 hard <laughs> not to get jealous at times. I'm not gonna lie. In terms of like yeah. other dealers, you know, I don't. It's funny, right? Because I get a lot of comments about. I think people are under the impression that dealers are always kind of like communicating back and forth behind the pictures and in my case i got a few dealer friends that i talk to but for the most part i have no idea what's going on with another dealer's business um i'm too yeah. busy focusing on mine so a lot of times i don't even see what other dealers are picking up but there's some guys like on facebook like just collects a good example they're they're very active on social media and Leighton will post fine stuff like that. So I have I have a little bit of insight like on from social media, but quite honestly, I I'm kind of in my own world. Yeah. All right, we're, we're almost running out of time again. Like, uh, we've got four we got four minutes left. I want to get this question in though, Kurt. We're gonna put you on the spot. Where do you think 
and the hobby is going to be down the road in five years. What sets are going to be in demand? What sets will no longer be in demand? Your thoughts? Yep. So here's my thought. I I think in the next five years, I think you're going to see the popularity on the late 60s and early to mid-70s sets surge a bit. And the reason we talked about it last week, a big part of collecting is going back to what you collected as a child. And, I, and I've seen over the last few years, like those late 60s and early 70s sets start to pick up. And I think just, you know, you look at your, the age of your average collector, you're finding that there's a lot of guys that collected cards as kids. They're, they're starting to have a bit more disposable income. And those are the years that those guys grew up with. So I think those years, I think you're going to see people, more people collecting those. And then I think in general, I think sets that have popular rookies, um, like, you know, the name is a 65 top set. That's always going to be popular. Um, you go through and look at, like, all your key figures, you know, in the sport. I think the rookies, the rookie class really drives the popularity of a set. So, yeah, I would say, I would say, I would say that's my answer, Bob, if that makes sense. Good points. And the, Good six, points. and the 64 top set. You can't never forget the 64 top set. Yeah, yeah. Well played, sir. That's for sure. All right, we got two, we got two <laughs> minutes is, left. It is memorable. <laughs> two minutes left. Kurt, final thoughts, and then I'm going to go into my two-minute warning here. Well, my final thoughts, I, you know, I don't have anything, any final thoughts on the topics that we covered, but I, I do want to say thank you again to both of you guys. Um, you guys have both been great hobby friends, and I appreciate I appreciate what you guys do and what you do for the hobby. So those are my final thoughts. We appreciate you being on, and um, we'll be in touch, to say the least. All right, Joe. We're down to 90 seconds. Right, two-minute warning. Gonna hand off All right, to you. sounds good. Joe, good luck on well, that 59 vending box. I know you're the top bidder right now, so. <laughs> My wife would kill me. <laughs> uh, well, it's over six figures now. Did you see that? I can't wrap my mind around who's spending that money on that, but. Yeah. Anyways. Um, oh, well. Well, all right. final thought. Sure, I just, yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, thanks, Kurt, for being on. Man, just, uh, just I, I said it last week after the show. It's, it's like we're sitting around a table in Chicago, you know, at the National, just catching up, just known Kurt a long time just we shared rooms at nationals before so just yeah. yeah a great person and what a nod what a humbling nod for him in his bio to say I had something to do with his collection it's just I don't know I've had I've up shoulders of giants I've had great people give me input and uh you know here I am you know you know hanging out with the captain every week so yeah. I just I, 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 I love it it's true, though, because if you have a mentor in the hobby, the hobby can really go very, very far. And that's, you know, we need a lot. We need more mentors in the hobby. We, you know, we can, we can break away a little from those slab cards 
for a second and understand the game a little more in the history of the game. And I think that's what it's all about. Okay, we're almost out of time. Um, again, uh, I really I don't have much more to say. I think it was a great two shows together with Kurt. We picked up on a lot of different things, a lot of great information. And uh, hopefully the hobby embraces it and, and uh, collects that 56 taps. We're out of time. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back hopefully in two weeks with another show. Take care. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.